This is the Permaculture Podcast. In this interview from 2014, one of my favorite people from the permaculture community, Carnelson Ramanujan, joins us to share a pattern language she's identified for women in permaculture, which we can use to create a constructive permaculture movement so that together we can design a world with ever greater beauty, abundance, and inclusivity. The starting point for this conversation is Karin's article, A Pattern Language for Women in Permaculture. In this powerful piece, Karin outlines the patterns and provides solutions to create an environment for women's full participation and leadership in the permaculture community. These eight patterns, some of which we discussed together, are shift our mental models, understand and advocate for the 30% solution as a vital step toward parity, value diversity, intersecting identities, mentoring is key to building women's leadership, value archetypical feminine ways of leading, nurture women's leadership through women's gatherings, be an ally. In addition to this pattern language, during her research, Karin found many women struggle to earn a living with their good work. To support these entrepreneurs, she offers three different courses, Pathfinders, Sweet Spots, and Abundance Models, to help women design their regenerative right livelihood. Enrollment in the next Pathfinders course starts in late February 2020. If you are interested in this or any of her other courses, you'll find those hosted within the Regenerapreneurs Network, which you can also join as a general member. Learn more at regenerapreneurs.com. You will also find more of Karin's writing on Medium, where she writes as Regenerapreneurs. Links to all of those and the article that started this conversation in the show notes. Enjoy this conversation, and I'll join you again after. So Karin, if you are ready, let us begin this conversation with your biography and background, and then we can discuss your pattern language for women and permaculture. So my name's Karin Olson Ramanujan, and I'm originally from South Dakota. And even as a young person, I felt first and foremost like I was a world citizen and I wanted to see the world. So right away in high school, I left and went to Germany and lived there as a high school student, again, as a college student. And then I did technical translation there for two years. And I mentioned that because it was actually really formative for me. There were simple things like the fact that they had mandatory recycling and bottle reuse in stores and you paid for plastic bags. I mean, this is literally 30 years ago that folks were doing that kind of stuff in Germany. Recycling batteries, you know, stuff that seems so obvious and obligatory to Germans back then really helped open my eyes to the impact of my lifestyle in America. And then also in college when I was in Germany, I met and became friends with several West Africans and I just fell in love with their culture, and I was like, I'm going to figure out a way to live there for some time. So I came back to the U.S., got a master's in public affairs. I laughed because it was in international affairs and natural resource management. And I came out of that program knowing that I had zero clue about how to manage a fishery or a farm or a forest or anything. So like I said, I was on my way to... Africa. So I got a Rotary scholarship and I was going to go to the University of Ghana and I was going to study agriculture or natural resource management there for a year. But when I got there, it was a whole time of the World Bank and structural adjustment. So the professors weren't getting paid anything. So they were on strike. And so, you know, my education ended up looking different than I planned in that year. But of course, like any experience, you know, life experience, especially experience abroad, it was fantastic. And I learned a lot. Then I came back home and my husband and I were 
temping in San Francisco and getting ready to go back on our next chance living abroad. And a coworker said, hey, I've got a friend from high school who married a Kenyan and she's camel farming. And she does this thing called permaculture. And I think you'd be really into it. So my husband gave me as a, I think, our first anniversary present or something, a PDC with Larry Santoyo. And like so many folks, you know, there was this like aha moment. Oh, there's this unifying framework that puts everything that I already believe into, you know, this coherent way of approaching life. And I knew right away that I wanted to teach permaculture. So we moved to India a few years later, and I started working as an environmental educator in different schools. And we got to take a PDC there with John Button. It was really wonderful because it was in a reforestation demo site at the base of this sacred mountain. And, you know, got to see how permaculture was applied in the tropics. So then we come back to the United States. We start our family. We have our two girls. My husband goes through grad school. And in search of community, we ended up now in Eco Village in upstate New York. So it's been great because... It's a really ripe ground for teaching permaculture. I'd already started teaching permaculture with Karen Stupski in Baltimore. But then when I uh, moved here, I met Steve Gabriel and Michael Burns when we started the Finger Lakes Permaculture Institute back in 2005. And we're going to be teaching our 12th annual PDC this summer in July and August. And it's been a really great experience. And I want to mention also that Kay Kafasa was early on part of our teaching team. I also I'm helping start the Time Bank. I think um, lots of permaculturists are interested in that. And I teach as adjunct at Ithaca College. The point I wanted to make with this is, is there's a theme that went through all this that's woven through all of it. And it's really about the empowerment of women. And I didn't really realize that that was a theme until probably a year ago or so. But as an ad- undergrad, I was a women's studies minor. And I worked as a rape prevention educator. And it was as if the scales fell from my eyes. It was like, wow, I get to understand systemic oppression, internalized oppression, and really how sexism hurts men as well as women. And it was totally enlightening. And, you know, when on all my travels, I was always connecting with women, always curious about their lives and their dreams. When I was in India, I was totally struck by the amount of privilege that I enjoyed that I didn't even realize, you know. I accompanied a midwife on her village visits, and she would do healthy mother checkups for pregnant women. And the first woman that came in was like 16, and she just miscarried her first child. So she'd been married at least nine months, you know, at 15, gotten married. The next woman she saw was probably 46. She looked like she was 70 or 80. Nine months pregnant, you couldn't even tell. She was probably having her eighth or ninth kid. And I had never in my mind thought, even with all my kind of women's studies and feminist studies, you know, viscerally thought about what would my life be like if I started having kids at 15 and I ended with menopause and, you know, limitations of access to resources and all the things like that. And I think people, you know, anybody who's traveled has those kind of like experiences that make everything real. And I don't want to say like, oh, all those poor women in India or Africa, because there are also some of the most powerful women I've met were in those places. And, you know, I also spent a lot of time with my husband's aunts. My husband's family's from South India. And I was learning how to cook. I was learning all of this traditional knowledge about herbs and healing. And, you know, there's just thousands of years of there's a plant for everything (laughs) in India. And, you know, it was this, this time right before the capitalist explosion really happened there 
and just really seeing women as keepers of this culture and this knowledge. So, you know, all these great experiences. And then I became a mother. Then it actually got real and I was living it. And I got to understand on a whole different level the challenges, you know, what it is to be a woman, a professional, a mother, a partner. I stayed home with my kids and I worked really part time until their school age. And it was a great decision. I love it. And it was really hard. And it's been hard to figure out how to start my own business, how to work as a permaculture design professional. You know, I'd already been teaching permaculture for years, and that was even sometimes still hard. I'd often end up feeling badly, and I couldn't figure out why. And here I am, you know, I've got all this great stuff behind me, you know, education, privilege, income, middle class. I have a super supportive husband, and I think we all know what it's like to have a supportive partner because someone early on talked to me about, like, the fact that there are permaculture widows, you know, when the husband goes out to teach the PDC, the woman's on her own. And that really is the reality in my family. If I go out to teach the PDC, there's a two week stretch in which mom is not around. And my husband's a permaculture widower. I also have a great team of men who support me that I co-teach with. What was curious to me is when I taught with other women, it felt easier, and that made me a little crazy. I couldn't figure out why. Here I am, an emancipated woman working with ally men. I thought it was all me. I couldn't figure it out. I'm not a person who's messy, so I didn't make it about other people. I made it about myself. And what was great about that was it spurred me to do a ton of research and to learn as much as I could about women in their careers and how we get ahead and what's challenging. And, you know, I really realized that whole feminist idea, the personal is political, you know, that my struggles with work and life balance were as much about the systems that we've created where families aren't supported in general as it was about me. And then you add to that, like, you know, you're getting back into your career field, you're in a field that's not mainstream, you know, and you're starting your own business, and then it even gets more complicated. So one thing I realized was I had not been connecting with other women because as a mom, you know, on one income, I hadn't been traveling, and that's what spurred me to connect with other women. And so I put out a call via email and social media and just said, you know, if you're a woman who considers yourself a leader in permaculture, I want to talk to you. And, you know, was able to interview about 20 women via audio and email on lots of different things. And I, I want to say very clearly, it was not at all representative or scientific. You know, I had a deadline for publication. I reached the women I could reach. And so I'm not trying to pretend this is the voice of women in permaculture. That would be prob problematic for many reasons. And I think we should talk about it, especially when we talk about intersectionalities and that pattern. But nonetheless, I was totally struck by the common themes that resonated with my own experience. And since, as permaculturists, we're folks with a solutions-based approach to life, I was seeing that these women, even if it, when they had challenges, they were finding great solutions, great ideas. They're experimenting with like really interesting, systematic ways to help themselves that helped everyone else at the same time. And it was so inspiring. So I knew I wanted to provide a beginning point for a conversation about how to support women's leadership in permaculture. And by leadership, I don't mean, you know, the conventional hierarchical top-down dictator kind of approach. I mean the ability to get stuff done with other people 
and decentralized leadership that enhances the ability of people in our organizations to work productively toward common goals. It's about learning organizations. So there's a lot of people out there, actually, I think, that fit that description. So, you know, it's about agency. It's about how do you make choices about what you want to happen and make it, make it happen. So that's where the idea of a pattern language came from. You know, we, we've all seen Christopher Alexander's pattern language books, and they're so enlightening to see, like, a pattern for a doorway and that how you design that doorway totally changes your experience of the space. And then you can put that together with a pattern for sleeping areas and kitchens and mudrooms, and, and you can design this language that meets the needs of the people in the building. So I was thinking, what if we outline patterns that each one suggests a solution to a barrier to women's leadership, and then we put it together. You take the patterns that work for your organizations and you create a language that's really going to enhance leadership. And that's what I'm hoping the permaculture movement will help co-evolve. There's a lot that you shared with me in your story of how you've gotten to here and some of the issues that you faced that I myself have gone through. I was a stay-at-home dad for a number of years, and there's, there's not a lot of support for that. There was this constant pushback that I should be the one who was out there working, and it was always this question, well, when are you going to go get a job? Well, you know, once the kids are in school, we're going to figure things out. And then it became a, well, then once the kids are in school, what are you going to go do? And there was not this acceptance of trying to grow a personal business. And it was like as soon as my wife and I enrolled our children in a preschool program, because of some of the evidence of, you know, Head Start and things really helping children, and because of a lot of the social isolation that I felt that then limited my children's ability to interact with other children, that we had to take this step forward. And it was like day one, as soon as both kids were in this program, the phone calls start. So here's that you're free now. There's this push and trying to go back to work after a number of years, because I had looked at returning to a regular career path of what I'd done before being a manager of an IT department, that there was this whole, well, why weren't you working? Well, I was home staying, you know, working with my kids, and I felt like I was automatically no longer a viable candidate because my family took some kind of importance to me and that that could disrupt my ability to, you know, be a man and be out there and do my job and these other things. I really want to thank you for saying that for two reasons. One is it just epitomizes the fact that the caring work has been traditionally often a lot of the of carried by women. You know, the vital caring work that makes the world go round is not valued, whether it's done by women or men. And I think that that as permaculturalists, you know, if we're thinking about long-term healthy societies, we have to learn to, to value that caring work. That's why I'm helping start a time bank. I find it totally revolutionary that you know, reading a book to a bedridden grandmother is equal to one hour of mechanic work or dentistry or massage because it is that important. And we revalue that core economy when we do that. The other reason is, one of the reasons I want to tell people why this matters, why people should care about a pattern language for women in permaculture, whether or not you think this is your topic, one reason is because it's like universal design. You know how that movement that removed barriers for folks who used to be called handicapped, now they're called differently abled, made life better for everybody? 
I really see this as the same thing. Like addressing barriers to women's participation is going to make life better for their families, for their communities, for the permaculture movement, for everybody. So this is a conversation that I think is relevant for everyone else. The other thing to follow up on that is when I interviewed women in the permaculture interviews for the article, you know, I honestly, I asked them, now, does it look where you're practicing permaculture? Does it look like a white middle class movement? Because that's how it looks where I'm at to no fault. I'm not faulting anyone. I'm just doing a site analysis and assessment. Like that's what it looks like. And for most of them said a resounding yes. And at the gatherings I've been able to go to and attend, there are wonderful conversations about the fact that we want to build an inclusive permaculture movement. And, you know, the fact is not everyone lives in a highly ethnically diverse place where you get to practice skills, creating inclusion across race and, you know, class or whatever and all those things. But you definitely are in relationship with women. And so it's a great place to learn how to be an ally. And those skills are a great starting point for building all the other relationships that we want to build to build an inclusive movement. You spoke to one of the subjects that I want to talk more about within our community, that idea of, you know, does it look like a white middle class movement? Because that's been my experience as well. And my wife is involved with some sustainable agriculture and gardening organizations. And we go to these events and it's the same people over and over again. And the classes remain the same kind of makeup of people. Yes. And so when, when I talk about in the article, the pattern of intersectionality and that that really matters, we can talk about that more in depth at that point, I think would be a really good point to dive into that. So many of the words that you're using feel like key words to me of things that I have been exploring personally and in conversations with others, because I know what it's like to have time or money, but not both. In order to pursue some of these things, well, if that's the case, how do we make these ideas more accessible? But before we go too far down that path, I'd like if you could bring me back on track with where we can go to discuss this exploration of your pattern language. Sounds great. Well, one of the places I like to start is really with zone zero, you know, looking at myself and, and how I think and how I move through the world and uh, inviting other folks to do the same. So the first pattern that I like to talk about is examining and shifting our mental models. Mental models are these like really deep generalizations that we have inside of us that influence how we understand the world. And of course, they determine how we take action. So, you know, we think about, you know, the idea of the sun revolving around the earth and how that dictated so much of how people could think or the scientific idea of everything's kind of like a machine and you can take it apart to understand it and how that's created this kind of reductionist approach to life that doesn't actually reflect reality. So mental models are really, really potent. And when we think about mental models around gender, I found this brilliant resource that I hope I will invite everybody to visit online. There's these things called Gender Schema Tutorials, and it's S-C-H-E-M-A. And this brilliant scientist who directs this gender equity project, she does a lot of study about women working in STEM fields, so science, technology, engineering, and math. And 
she does research and talks eloquently about these gender schemas and you can do these tutorials to learn about them. And what those are, they're just basically unaware assumptions about what it means to be male or female in our society. And it looks at how advantage accumulates based on people's unaware assumptions. So what, what she's able to show scientifically is that all leaders are measured against quote unquote masculine characteristics. And I say quote unquote because there are no characteristics that are just for men or just for women. They're just archetypically considered one or the other. But, you know, the, the archetypically masculine characteristics are leadership, competence, assertiveness. And so women leaders are measured against those masculine characteristics. And what happens is both men and women consistently overrate the performance of men and underrate the performance of women. And it's important to understand that this happens on the level of the subconscious and that most of us have good intention. But even that idea of, oh, I believe men and women are equal can actually blind us to the effect that this does actually impact us. So what happens because of this is you'll have 50% women in any of those STEM fields or 50% women in your PDC course. And you'll start off on those entry level professional things. Men and women are equal, right? But as, you know, careers progress, What's interesting is that the data shows that women are not at 50% of leadership. If you look at business, if you look at government, if you look at the high levels of, I call them the, the permaculture rock stars, a lot of people said, no, there aren't a lot of women that we consider permaculture rock stars. And so what's interesting is, what's illustrative is they did a computer model where there was a 1% advantage in favor of this one group. Everyone started out equal, but if there's a chance for promotion in this model, one group had a 1% advantage for promotion. Tiny, right? Seems immeasurable. But after many iterations, the group that was the men were in 65% of the leadership roles in the organization. So it really shows how this tiny bit of accumulation of advantage or accumulation of disadvantage ends up to be a big systemic issue because it's amplified. And so I think I should give a few examples of how that looks and I can speak from my own. So again, anything that helps people see me as a woman professional gives me a micro disadvantage, a micro a check in the negative column for me. And anything that helps people see a man as a male professional leader, gives him a little bit of a plus. So if a man teaches a technical skill, check, positive in his category. If I do something that's archetypically feminine and talk about my family or take care of the process in the community to make sure everyone's well taken care of and has you know, adequate food and you know, they're dealing with their conflicts well, that actually counts as a micro disadvantage in my category. And often these things kind of snowball. So those micro disadvantages, though they may only be 1% or a small percent, as you add up these different pieces, it becomes a very heavy weight against you? Exactly. It starts to have the males in the course look like they're more competent than the females in the course, 
when women, and I want to say this clearly, when women are less than 50% of the teaching team. Another pattern that I talk about from my research is the need for 50% women in leadership, but the pattern is called the 30% solution because once you get more than 30% women in leadership, everything changes, including those perceptions of women. So whereas a woman, when she's just one or, you know, one or two women in her field working in a male-dominated field is seen primarily as a woman, less as a professional, when there are more women in the field, the women start to be seen as professionals. But the reason why I want to really have people understand these really subconscious, really minuscule accumulations of advantage to men is because as a woman, it's so easy to feel like, what, am I crazy? Why is this so hard? Why do I somehow feel like I'm not being taken seriously? I'm just as competent, and I'm a great teacher, and I'm whatever. And I heard lots of women say this. I also heard women who are like, knock it out of the park, super skilled in highly technical things, say that when they entered the permaculture movement, it was automatically kind of assumed that they would do some of the organizing and admin tasks as opposed to like mainstream into like being like a super technical presenter. So that isn't to the benefit really of anybody. I just think of all the perspectives that are being lost, all the information that we could share with one another, the stories that can connect, that can connect us to our teachers and the people in our classrooms and in our working environments that can make our lives more connected and in a way easier by having an equal perspective of everyone. And I apologize, I'm, I'm failing for words there a little bit, but I just think of everything that's lost because of this disadvantage. Right, and what I want to point out is it's not anybody's fault. You know, it's kind of like the fish doesn't know the water that it's swimming in. And unless we decide, I'm in my middle 40s and I've been looking at women's issues for years, and I just now was able, you know, from my own experience and from doing this research to, to get my hands on data that actually shows that I'm not crazy and there are systemic things that we need to address. And I think the more that we just realize, wow, we all have a lot to learn, it's going to make things a lot better. By the way, all of this stuff is proven in regards to race also, right? The ways in which there are microaggressions towards people of color that white people might not even be aware of that are happening totally impacts their lives, totally and completely impacts their lives. So again, you might not be in relationship with a person of color that's so trusting and so close that they're going to call you on your microaggression, but I guarantee you're in a relationship with a woman and you can ask and be looking. So one of the things I'm inviting folks to do is specifically with the 30% solution is to look at the organizations that we all work in. And, and I'm putting this forward on the shoulders of a woman, Linda Tar Whelan. She wrote a book that changed my life called Women Lead the Way, Your Guide to Stepping Up to Leadership and Changing the World. And she talks about having been in a, a delegate to the UN Beijing Women's Conferences and they adopted there this benchmark that there should be 30% women in governments, 
in business, in all of the NGOs, in all of the leadership. And it took years. And actually, like even in Norway, where, you know, we think of Norway as like this bastion of gender equality, even in Norway, they had to threaten corporations with taking away their charter if they didn't get to at least 30% women in leadership before a lot of it was done. So the United States actually does not rank high. We're actually below a lot of what are considered, you know, developing nations as far as gender parity and women's leadership. So what I'm inviting people to do is do a site analysis and assessment of what organizations am I working in and are there at least 30% women in leadership? And if that's not the case, let's have a conversation about why. And especially let's ask the women in the organization who they know. Because what I want to say is the women are actually out there. There are the women out there doing the work. It's just we often get into this. If we ask a man who he knows, often the first thing might be a man. I'm not saying always, and there's a ton of great men, but, you know, there are networks and it's easy to kind of follow a network and we have to actually invite people to start asking, who don't I know? Who should be here? Who's not? And that was one of the conversations we had via email in setting up this interview and also before we began recording today. I wasn't even aware of who I wasn't reaching out to to talk to and that it's this oversight from ignorance. And that's exactly why I'm inviting us to just open up this conversation. I don't really think that finger pointing or attacking makes any sense. It undermines the unity and the dignity of all of us. So instead, like, let's just have a really good conversation and put our heads together about, okay, well, who might be the women that are doing great work, who can put us in contact with other women who are doing great work. And I don't think that anybody has done anything of of this maliciously or with ill intent. And it's just like site analysis and assessment. Oh, this is the situation. Okay. That's not actually the optimal situation we want. Let's design for better outcomes. And so just doing those inventories or setting benchmarks, like we can actually set set benchmarks. Okay. Well, we're at, you know, this amount of percent of leadership in our organization by women let's set a benchmark and let's reevaluate next year and let's see how we did after we've built some relationships and whatnot. One thing I also want to say is when I interviewed the women for the uh, article, it was clear that there are places where it's more than 50% women in leadership and it's often around organizing and that's often unpaid. So there's more to it than just 30%. It's also challenging things like how do we figure out abundance models? And I'm saying abundance models because I want to say business models, but I don't think it has to be just like with monetary value. You know, it could be time banking. It could be a gift economy. But abundance models for people who do the hard work of organizing events, it's often unpaid, as we all know. But how do we value those skills, which are, again, the core economy that make everything happen, They're as important as knowing how to run a backhoe and doing earthworks. So how do we shift our minds so that we are valuing the archetypically feminine skills and at the same time not getting caught up in just it's got to be business models because I think we all know that there's great benefit to being able to think like a business person and 
unbridled capitalism <laughs> is, is a, uh, a problematic thing at the same time. But I'm really looking at like, what do abundance models look like? On the ground when I was a stay-at-home parent, just having someone come over and watch my children for an hour so I could go out and garden would have been a godsend. That's more valuable than any amount of money that I could have earned in that time or from that endeavor. Yes, very much so. You know, when I think about women's leadership, I'm inspired by all of this. One of the offerings I'm going to offer through my personal business, which I call Seed Sustainability Consulting, is educational workshops that are going to support people to take leadership in permaculture. And it's going to feature both the really technical skills and supporting that and featuring 50% women as presenters of those, because again, they're out there and I can find them. And if you're a woman who, or a man, anybody who has, you know, a technical skill, like you're really good at, I'm in contact with this great woman who I met through the Women's Permaculture Convergence. Uh, that was the first one that happened here in upstate, uh, sorry, in the Northeast. Her name is Beth Skirmerhorn, and she's going to do a workshop for me to share with everyone about how to cost out your designs. You know, like, wow, what a great technical skill that we all want to have. And I'm aiming for kind of a webinar kind of format because, wow, as a stay-at-home parent, you can do that. It's low cost. You don't have to leave the family. You don't have to have a huge carbon footprint, that type of thing. So on one hand, you know, like really bolstering and building people's skills as permaculture designers, but also providing a venue for women to show that they're there with the skills. And on the other hand, I'm really interested in reclaiming the social permaculture or the soft skills. Like I feel find words fail us. So if people have better words for hard skills and soft skills or technical skills and social skills, whatever, I want to figure out what that language looks like. But claiming facilitation, cultural competency, nonviolent communication as actual technologies that we all need to really be effective permaculture designers and teachers. I feel really passionate about that. So that we're at the same time, you know, saying, yeah, we're all whole human beings who can be really technical and on it. And we can be super present and super vulnerable and super connected with each other so that we have more trust to build really thriving relationships. And I think that's really key. And I want to revalue those skills that are archetypically feminine and the other point I want to make about why this matters for everybody is those leadership skills are stated time and time again as the skills that are needed for this time in human history. So again, Linda Tarwhelan in her Women Lead the Way has data. There's a woman named Margaret Wheatley who is an, a phenomenal systems thinker. And she's written books that have been called like the top 10 business books of all time. And she says, I actually have a quote from her. She says, to live in this world at this time, we weave here and there with ease and grace. We need to stop describing tasks and instead facilitate process. We need to become savvy about how to build relationships, how to nurture growing, evolving things. We all need better skills in listening, communicating, and facilitating groups because these are the talents that build strong relationships. And then like even the Harvard Business Review has said that women have this transformative leadership style that makes institutions more transparent, more responsive, more accountable, and more ethical 
you know, more ethically focused. And that's been more effective at leading modern organizations than a transactional approach that's often considered a male approach. This isn't just about women claiming these technologies. This is about enabling everyone to be a whole human being to be the best leader that they can. And that includes honing the skills that are considered archetypically feminine and aren't valued as much. You know, one of the challenges I've had with my business model for the webinars is I want to offer to pay the women who present, whether she's presenting a technical workshop or she's presenting cultural competency. So one of the women that I interviewed for my article, Pandora Thomas, has said that she will facilitate that conversation. Now, she's bringing a life of experience, incredible amount of study and expertise. Why would I pay her less for that workshop than I would pay the technical skill? It's not in accordance with my values. So it's a lot to figure out, but it's exciting to think about that I could build a business that would you know, provide a livelihood for my family, that works for my family life, provide a livelihood and visibility for people doing good work, provide a venue where you know, men and women are called to be our best selves and to hone the skills that we need to be really active permaculture designers. That makes me want to go through the stuff I don't like. You know, like I don't love sitting inside. Most permaculture folks want to be outside enjoying the outdoors. But I will sit down at the computer to try to figure out how to make this happen because I believe so much in these synergistic outcomes. And I have this really funny, silly idea. Again, I invite people's feedback. But, you know, we think about businesses talk about value chains, like all the stuff that has to happen in order for a product or service to come to market and to be effective for consumers. And I think about what's the permaculture value chain? I think we act a lot like a PDC is a product and it's our only product. But what if we make that whole chain of, uh, make a whole chain of services and products that makes everything work better for everybody? So the PDC doesn't actually work well for families, right? Because one of the people has to be gone for a long time. And I talked to women. So Janine Carlson at the Women's Permaculture Leadership Institute, they're doing amazing things, figuring out how to break a PDC into small pieces, have childcare in the morning that's, by the way, well-paid childcare, so that women have focused study while their children are in really high-quality childcare that's you know, earth-based and interactive and really fun, Everybody has lunch together, and then there's a hands-on activity that incorporates kids in the afternoons. So, you know, her point was kids are part of the community. They're excited about this stuff. They are the, the future of permaculture and regenerative design. Why would we not want them there? The moms are happy. The husbands, the fathers that are there are happy. They figured out to get childcare providers that are already licensed already have their own insurance. And it's really like a service that it's like a puzzle piece. You can attach it to a program. You can attach it to another program. The childcare provider has their own niche, right? I am a outdoor education professional, great with kids, and I can supply the childcare for your PDC. 
wow, doesn't that answer a lot of <laughs> the wishes we have? For as passionate as I am about this, and I even you know, approached my coworkers when my kids were little, and I was paying more than half of what I got paid from my PDC for childcare. And I, ca- I asked my colleagues, I said, you know, could I have someone take the PDC free next year if they watch my kids this time? And they said, yeah, and let's have that work for everybody. But honestly, I couldn't find anybody that had that much discretionary time to watch my kids that I knew well and trusted to do it. But we've got to start thinking these ways so that it's not just the participants who need childcare. It's often teachers might be parents. And if there was really great childcare, it just, again, it benefits everybody. So I'm calling it, and, and this is funny, I'm calling it, you know, the value chain. I'm calling what if it were an eco-feminist value chain, you know, where it takes care of women, it takes care of families, it takes care of the earth, you know, and then let's take it another step and let's call it the eco-feminist multicultural value chain. Because again, you know, we want everybody there. And what does that look like? Do we have people of color in our programs so that there's a critical mass and people feel comfortable coming to our programs? Stuff like that. You know, like, Being an off-grid caterer who can show up and cater your PDC, again, it would be the answer to so many permaculture organizers' dream and not having to organize that part. That speaks to a lot of the just general issues that we have within the permaculture community of, as you've said, we know that the traditional permaculture PDC intensive model works if you have the time and the money to do that. But as we move forward, we need to start looking at new models. Your mention of, of these different niches that people can fill is one of the conversations I've had with quite a few people in the community. Uh, David Holmgren in particular comes to mind about how we have to find our own place and our own models because permaculture isn't just garden design or teaching that you can apply this to business. When you were talking about childcare, I would love to have a child care provider or really a preschool where they have a nature educator who knows about permaculture to be sharing this with children and that you could go through and focus on that and it provides lots of opportunities for people to take the skills that they already have and turn it into something more than what they thought it might have been and provide different models then for others on how they can move forward and make well and to live the life that they want to. And it's so much the problem is the solution mentality. You know, I mean, the PDC is a great model and it's worked and it has its shortcomings. I mean, another challenge that I've heard over and over at gatherings and in conversations is permaculture as a word doesn't resonate with everybody. And again, I want to say that the women's permaculture movement is not one thing. It looks different for every woman. And uh, I want to bring up the idea of intersectionality here. You know, so folks already know I'm from South Dakota and I'm a woman. But, you know, if I say I am Caucasian, I'm middle-aged, I'm in my mid-40s, I am middle class, it gives you a different idea of what my experience looks like. Now, if I add on there the fact that I'm in a cross-cultural marriage and I'm the mother of children who encounter the world as their people of color, they identify as people of color, that gives you another idea of what my life looks like. And that's how it is for everybody, right? We're not just a member of one constituency. And 
that's called intersectionality, right? Where do all these different identities intersect in my identity? And of course, it's different for everyone. So we can't say that the women's movement in permaculture is one thing. And that was, you know, that was the critique of feminism, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, is it looked like a white woman's movement. Well, of course, it's not. And black feminists did a great job of helping feminism look at what that was about, right? And a lot of it was about unaware privilege. So it's very clear, women in permaculture looks as different as you can imagine. But what happens with the word permaculture is it's sometimes, and this is, this is what Pandora, I think, will say much more eloquently than I can in so many ways, but... When we were talking about where are the, the women of color in permaculture, I was saying, you know, I don't know very many, and where are they and, and whatnot. And she was like, they're there. They're not calling it permaculture because it doesn't actually meet the needs of their communities. You know, you're not going to walk into your neighborhood and being like, oh, and I learned about permaculture. I kind of call it the P word sometimes. <laughs> like, watch your language. Don't use the P word because it isn't relevant you know, and the women I talk to who are working in South Africa, even as self-identified middle-class white women, they're saying that the word permaculture isn't relevant for the people they're working with. What's relevant is food security. What's relevant is climate change adaptation and mitigation. And that's what they're calling it. So, you know, there's a lot to learn here again about how we build inclusive communities and The way that we do it is not by going in and permavangelizing. It's about, first off, and Starhawk speaks to this very eloquently. She's really been dedicated to building an inclusive movement. First off, it's building really mutually supportive relationships with communities that don't have a lot of the resource that we have. You know, it's an ongoing effort at building relationship. And then second of all, it's figuring out how to get enough funds so that The people of color, for example, in her case, who are going to be there, it's not like there's one. It's not like they've got to swim through that ocean of white, privileged, middle-class folks to get this permaculture education. There's a cohort of people from different experiences who identify as people of color, and they're going to be there to mutually support each other and to enrich the class. And that's what her point was, is... The classes are qualitatively richer with that approach for everybody. And again, it's like I get shivers and I get chills and I get so excited because there's so much opportunity here. There's so much opportunity for growth and mutual benefit. And I don't want to, you know, act like I have all the answers. And I want to say that as a, you know, person of Anglo descent who's been working in anti-racism for a long time, I'm in a multicultural relationship, you haven't made a mistake I haven't made. (laughs) And so, you know, I want to encourage folks, I don't have the answers. Let me know where I'm not figuring things out. Let's be in relationship in that conversation. And what I've found is when I am vulnerable that way, the huge, I mean, hugely offensive mistakes that I've made, I have found that the people of color are incredibly generous to me about helping me understand them and still holding my dignity and humanity up for me to see as I go through that painful learning experience. And I think that that's a way that for me as a white person with privilege to go in there and follow the leadership. And I think that's one of the keys when we're working, you know, thinking about a more inclusive permaculture leadership 
is build the relationships and then follow those people's leadership. Don't come in with an answer. Come in as a support. And then if you get used for your permaculture, things will be great. But don't come in, you know, like you've got the answers and instead pay a lot of attention to the relationship building. You spoke a lot there to something that was recently shared with me. Well, there are two kind of like quotable quotes, if you will. The first is that we can't inflict ourselves and permaculture on others. And the other is that we can't go in with a head full of ideas that we actually have to be a part of the community that we're there to work with and we have to listen first. And that we have to meet the needs of the community that we go into. We can't meet our needs through that community. Exactly. And I think at the same time, we also have to realize that there's palpable benefits to having more diversity at the table. And I'm not just talking about ethnic diversity. I'm talking about class. I'm talking about gender spectrum, sexual, sexual uh, identity, all of the different ways that we might identify. Again, research shows, Margaret Wheatley shows that innovation happens better in more diverse groups because you've got more minds at the table. And the other thing is decisions. I talk about this in the article. There are studies that show that decision-making is more effective and qualitatively better in diverse groups. So it's not just like it's the right thing to do. I joke about the business case, you know. So like there's actually a business case for why we want women in leadership and why we want to have more inclusive communities. It just makes sense. When you have more women in Fortune 500 companies, not only do they make a better profit, they have triple bo- you know, better triple bottom line, but they have better policies for their workers. They have better retention. So as a person in all my life, I've, I've really strived with every cell of my body not to think about business. I had this mental model that business was bad. But what I'm finding, having dived into now learning how to run a business, is that there's a lot of great information out there. All of, you know, a lot of the research that I shared with you today is because businesses are measuring this because they're being forced to look at equity within their work environments. That's important, that realization that you've come to because there are a lot of models out there that work and we can take those and pull them into our community, apply the permaculture twist to them so that they work for us within our community, but also so that those models are more inclusive of others. That's a really powerful place to work from. Though I don't know that we covered your work on the pattern language as much as we might have. We've certainly touched on a lot of the problems that we face within the community. Well, actually, you know, we did cover a ton of the patterns. You know, we talked about shifting mental models and under that, the gender schemas. We talked about the 30% solution. We talked about that diversity strengthens groups. We talked about intersectionality, feminine ways of leading. I guess there's, there's a few I would like to just mention. And, you know, who was the fellow that had the number one podcast? Ethan Hughes. Right. So I listened to Ethan Hughes' interview, and then I listened to Eric Olson on professional permaculture. And what I loved about that was it was like, there's the business model, and there's the loving gift economy. And I just loved both of those. And I see myself as so in both of those in flux. And one of the other patterns is about women mentoring women. And, you know, women are figuring out how to do that just because they love it. And women are figuring out to do it in a way that actually makes financial sense for them. 
And just to say that it makes a dim difference when a woman mentors another woman, that's what I'm hoping to do partly with my business is open up those networks. And then when women can get together at women's gatherings, wow, then stuff really happens. That's a pattern that we just saw with the Northeastern gathering and the West Coast women have talked about how it solidified and moved them forward individually and as a movement. And finally, the last pattern I just really want to reference is learning to be an ally. So I would love to invite men to take active part in formulating and upholding anti-harassment policies. So in my article, I talk about Starhawk says like there's ways to do that that are heavy handed and freak everybody out. And there's ways to do it that are well thought out and create safety. And that's the way you want to go. You want to do it in a way that doesn't make people feel scared, men or women. You want to do it in a way that provides a container. One of the standards they have for their course is instructors don't date students. It's just stated up front. They also say, you know, if anyone's here who feels like they could be an ally to someone who has a concern around anything, who would that be? And they self-identify. Just clarifying that, you know, we're going to be living here for two weeks and you should ask before you give a hug, you know? Don't assume that everybody wants to, you know, have everyone braiding each other's hair and doing stuff like that. And especially when we're talking cross-cultural, we have to have a lot more competency than just assuming things like that. So learning how to be an ally is learning about the privilege that, that we have, which is unearned benefits that we have that accrued to us because we're part of a certain group and we're usually unaware of the benefit that we have. So you learn about the privilege that you have and then you figure out how to be an ally to the group that is the historically oppressed person on the receiving end from my privilege and how do I be a good ally to them. It's good for everybody. And again, it's one of those things where it's not just about gender. It's about being an ally to any of the groups that you want to support. Thank you for the time that you've spent with me today, Karen. I really appreciate the dialogue. There are a lot of things that you've touched on that I've been thinking about and wanted to bring up with the community, but I don't have the awareness, understanding, or eloquence to have that. So I thank you very much for sharing this time with me and the exploration of all this, and also for pointing out that, yes, we had covered as much as we did because I was locked into my own thought of this one, two, three kind of explicit conversation but we were just able to have a dialogue and cover so much. And I really appreciate that. Thank you for this time. Thank you so much. And I'd love to invite listeners, if you'd like to profile a woman who's been, you know, a mentor in your life, if you go to my website, seedsustainabilityconsulting.com, there's a place to do that. You can download a PDF or online it has hyperlinks to resources about the pattern language in for women in permaculture. And you can find out more about the webinars that I hope to roll out in the next six months. Also, and I'd love to hear any feedback about the pattern language and how we put together a process for actually evolving it if folks want to. And I can just collect feedback if that's helpful. And I will certainly include show links in the notes for listeners to find all these resources. Fantastic. Thank you, Scott. And thanks for your wonderful resource you're offering for our communities. And thank you for joining me. I appreciate it so much for everything that I learned through this process. Thank you. And that was Karin Olson Ramanujan. For me, the interview with Karin was very important, even though I felt very unprepared at moments, because I believe in the equality and inclusion of everyone, and that 
these dialogues about where individuals, for whatever reason, are getting excluded need to be talked about. We need to be open about them. Though, as Karn expressed, and I share the sentiment, without blame, but to recognize the place that we're in, the place that we come from, and how this impacts others, so that we can truly treat each other equally, so that we can take care of ourselves and build community in ways that if we need help, we can ask others for help. And that when others are in need of help, we know and understand them, and that we can offer that to them as individuals or with whole communities, and continue to do this good work. To help that along, you'll find references and resources from this episode in the show notes, including a link to the Women's Permaculture Leadership Initiative, to more information on time banking, to Linda Tar Whelan, Janine Carlson Nelson, Karen Stupsky, as well as the book Women Lead the Way. If after listening to this, you want to add your thoughts to the discussion about women and inclusivity to permaculture, share them with me. Show at the permaculturepodcast.com is the email address. You can also give me a call, 717-827-6266. Also, this show depends on your support. So if you are in a place to help the show, go to the permaculturepodcast.com slash support, and there you'll find out ways that you can make a recurring contribution or a one-time. Some other ways that you can help would be to leave a review on your favorite podcast site and let people know about the show. Or sit down and listen to an episode with someone who you think would be interested, and then talk with them about it. And that's going to bring us to a close for today. Until the next time, take care of the earth, yourself, and each other.